that is, uh, there's actually a movie that's from the movie Case for a Creator. And I thought that that was a good introduction to what we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, because um, we could have uh, done Genesis 2 today. I think that that, uh, that would have been perfectly uh, acceptable. And there's a lot of uh, positives that were there. But I considered that, uh, especially on the heels of uh, our discussion last week of Genesis 1, that it would be good for you to understand the two primary arguments that come out of uh, believing that there is a creator. The, these two arguments lead to that, all right? But in the West, there has been a decreasing willingness to believe in the existence of God. And so there's, uh, there's been this scramble to try to come up with other ideas that will explain the origin of the universe and the intelligence that we find, uh, the intelligent design, if you will, that we find in the universe. So this week we're going to talk about um, the, uh, what is called the cosmological argument right? So why are we here, all right? Cosmological arguments for God's existence. Um, and now I say cosmological arguments because um, there are actually two that are uh, intertwined here. The first one that we'll look at is why. In addition to understanding that anything that begins to exist has a cause, and then trying to uncover what that cause might be for a universe like ours, there is this idea of anything that begins to exist has a reason. Now, um, scientists will talk about, well, the universe is just a, you know, why can't it be just a brute fact? And in fact, uh, uh, Dawkins is uh, famous for saying that why is a silly question. Is, is why a silly question? Is why a foolish question? Why drives our thinking all the time? In fact, you probably are more apt to ask why than you are to ask how, right? We wanna know, well, well what is that? What, what's going on here? And once something is going on, you're like, well, what, why? Why is this happening? You know, we ask these sorts of questions, right? Well, why does the universe exist? Why do you exist? Well, you know, Dawkins says, oh, well, why is a silly question? It's because science doesn't answer that question. There's nothing wrong with that, okay? Science is not God, although some people treat it as though it's God. Science is a, a, a brilliant strategy to uncover uh, causation, essentially, right? To be able to look at the way things are and see how they work. And because the universe operates... Uh, in continuity, all right, it's called the, broadly, it's called the continuity of nature. That means that what has happened will continue to happen. Causation will continue, right? If, if nature didn't have continuity, then science would have no predictive value. In fact, it, it's really questionable whether science would be valuable at all. So let's just take one example. Um, scientists have hypothesized that the poles, the North Pole and the South Pole, magnetic poles, may gradually shift, okay? Because they're watching some shifting going on now. Again, there's continuity. So they see something happening and they're predicting, well, if that continues to happen, then those poles are eventually going to shift. But what if they just shifted randomly all the time? What if the North Pole and the South Pole just shifted all the time? What if we just suddenly had more poles than that? If it, you know, other, other parts of the Earth suddenly have these magnetic poles. Are you following how difficult it would be, how chaotic and random? Just imagine how ancient men, ancient humans, felt about the world around them. They didn't follow a, a logical, reasonable, planned approach to understanding the way things work. So everything just seemed like, you know, it was being caused by some outside source or outside force. And, and as a result, uh, most ancient religions are animist religions, right? 
there's a God of the wind and the God of the waves. And, you know, there are all these gods and they're all out there moving everything, right? Because they just like, well, how is this happening? So their answer to how was, well, these gods are, are making this happen, okay? So what I think many times occurs is um, Christians and other theists, and a theist is somebody who believes in an all-powerful personal God, whether it's the triune God of Christians or the uh, hardcore monotheistic God of the Jewish people or of the Muslims. Uh, Muslims, Jews, and Christians all share a theistic view of God. This is an all-powerful personal being that is above and beyond the universe that created the universe and is capable of exercising his will, right? Um, that, that's a, broadly speaking, that's a theist. So uh, William Lane Craig's argument that you saw presented up here, the Kalam cosmological argument, actually comes from Islam. Um, uh, Al-Ghazali was the name of the Islamic philosopher slash theologian that formulated that argument. And he formulated that argument even before there was scientific evidence, in fact, before there was science. But he formulated that argument before there was scientific evidence for a, uh, a temporary, temporal, I should say, universe. That is a universe that began at a point in time. And, uh, you know, if things continue as we see them in a naturalistic way, then it eventually is going to die, right? Um, so, but Al-Ghazali used some other observations and ideas uh, to put forth the premise that the universe was not eternal. And one of those ideas was, and, and uh, I can't remember if I have that in this set of notes. Uh, if I don't, I'll have it in the teleological notes. But one of those ideas was that an actual infinite number of anything is impossible, infinite time is actually impossible. An infinite number of anything, any discrete set of objects is impossible. And I'll show you why when we get to that point. But I'm simply touching on it right now to say that Al-Ghazali used some arguments to demonstrate this and then formulated that. So even though he was a Muslim, he was a theist. There's a fundamental belief in an all-powerful personal God that is behind the universe that created the universe, right? Um, so I mentioned this in the message. If I didn't message, mention it in the message, I mentioned it uh, last week, but there was a uh, philosopher by the name of Leibniz, a brilliant philosopher, mathematician, who stated that everything that begins to exist has a reason for its existence. And if the universe began to exist, then it has a reason for its existence. And if it had a reason for its existence, then the most plausible reason is God. But let's get back to this idea of why, okay? Um, don't confuse why with how. So I'm gonna go back to uh, a time in philosophy before uh, Jesus existed. About 400 years before Jesus existed, there was a philosopher named Plato. And he writes about his teacher, a philosopher named Socrates. That's how that teacher, Socrates, never wrote. So everything that we have regarding Socrates comes from Plato. But Plato, in his dialogue called Phaedo, is speaking, uh, and this is, this is a, uh, a dialogue that Plato wrote about Socrates. And the dialogue, or the, the little work, the little book, if you will, is called Phaedo. And in this work, Socrates is speaking with his students for the last time. Um, he's been sentenced to death by the Athenians for, quote unquote, perverting the youth. And so they gave him hemlock to drink. They said, well, here's what you're going to do. You're either going to be excommunicated and you won't be allowed to be anywhere near Athens or you can commit suicide. And just to show you how much of a community these people were. So I talked, you know, Sunday about how we were made for relationship. And, you know, maybe some of you are like me, you, you kind of like being alone, but being cast out of your community, being excommunicated like that was really one of the worst things that could happen to you in the ancient world. They were just a very communally oriented people. The Jews were like that. The Greeks were like that. And so Socrates said, you know, no, I'm, you know, if he thought it was the, the honorable way, taking the honorable way. He lived under the the, the, you know, the rules and expectations of the Athenians all this time. So if they said that he needed to die, okay, he was going to die. 
So Phaedo is him sitting on a uh, in a room, really sitting on a bed, and uh, talking to his students. That's the entire book is just all of these things that he says to his students for the last time. So he asks the questions of his uh, the question of his students: Why am I sitting in this room with you? Why am I sitting on this bed? And here's the quote, and you can put that up there. It was as if a person had said that Socrates is sitting here because he is made up of bones and muscles instead of telling the true reason that he is here because the Athenians have thought good to sentence him to death and he has thought good to await his sentence. Hmm. Then he says, I wonder that they cannot distinguish the cause from the condition which the many feeling about the dark are always mistaking and misnaming. This is what science does. It mistakes why for how, or how for why, or simply wants to eliminate the question of why at all. Why is Socrates sitting here? Well, you give these physicalistic answers. Why am I sitting on this uh, on this stool? Well, your body is you know at such and such an angle, and there are these forces that are acting on the floor and on the the stool. And but you're not explaining why I'm sitting on this stool. You're explaining how. And this is the confusion that we have. Why am I sitting on this stool? Because I'm addressing you. Because I wanted to deliver this, uh, this talk this evening. Um, we can go into other reasons, more practical reasons, why I'm sitting on a stool instead of standing the whole time. But these are whys. These are motivational questions. And these are questions that science doesn't answer. Science cannot answer, as a matter of fact, okay? So why is there something rather than nothing, Leibniz asked. In other words, why does anything at all exist, William Lane Craig asks. It is the most basic question that anyone can ask. So formulation of cosmological argument number one is as follows. Um, to explain the existence of the universe, everything that exists has an explanation for its existence. If the universe has an explanation of its existence, that explanation is God. The universe exists. Therefore, uh, God is the explanation. Now, honestly, that's probably not terribly compelling for many people today. And that's why you don't hear this argument uh, used that often. But I think bringing forth the question, why does the universe exist? Why do you exist? For many people, is something that they would like to have answered, and that can put you into the next phase of the argument, all right? So let's look at, uh, some people would say, well, the universe is just, it's a blunt fact. It's a, it's a brute fact. It's necessary. Is the universe necessary? Does it have to be here? Okay, so what does it mean to exist necessarily? It is impossible for such a being not to exist. A necessary being must exist. It cannot not exist. Numbers and sets may fit into this category. They cannot not exist, but these are conceptual, right? This isn't a physical reality. A necessary being is uncaused by definition. So by the way, this is the answer to the question that people pose. Oh, well, you think the universe had any, you know, beginning to its existence. Well, then what about God? Where did God come from? But God is by definition the necessary being. This argument works because it says if something begins to exist, it has a cause. But God did not begin to exist. Well, then I don't think the universe began to exist. But as we saw in the video clip, and we'll cover this again in, in a little bit, there is scientific evidence that the universe began to exist. If we had evidence that the universe was a steady state of matter and energy, then it would be more difficult. Uh, really, I don't think you could use this argument, although you could take Al-Ghazali's route and prove that there, is, there cannot be an infinite amount of time or matter. But nonetheless, it would be very difficult to use this argument to say, well, there has to be something or someone outside the universe that caused it or brought it into existence. What if it's necessary? What if it just has always existed? But it hasn't. Scientifically, it has not. Now you may say, ah, but what about the multiverse? We're gonna talk about that next week. But let me just jump forward and say, there's no evidence for the multiverse. It's a hypothesis. 
It's a theory. It's mathematical and it's orientation, but there's no, you know, people are like, well, I know about science. Then why do you believe in the multiverse? Because there's no science behind the multiverse. There's, there's cos cosmologists that have come up with theory, and yet it's made its way into popular culture. We'll talk about it uh, probably next week. In fact, there's a piece of video from that same uh, case for a creator that I'll play next week, right? So God is the necessary being. And this is where we find the answer uh, to the question, where did God come from and who made God? God is being itself, pure being, and is the source of being to everything else. So Aquinas said God is the ground of all being, the essence of existence. It's very simple. From nothing, nothing comes. That's just basic. Nothing doesn't produce something ever. The closest that, you know, you and I could come to having nothing is if we had a vacuum, right? So in science, you have vacuum tubes. There's nothing inside the vacuum. There's actually something inside the vacuum. There's space inside the vacuum. And if you're shining light through it, then there's light particles going through the vacuum. But it's easier for us to conceive of nothing as a vacuum, right? So uh, a light bulb is a vacuum, but it's got the parts inside. So somehow you could take the parts out of the light bulb and still have a vacuum in there. And if you set that light bulb down on this table and you left it here for 10 years and you picked it back up, would there be anything inside that vacuum? Nothing, because there's nothing in there. There's nothing to produce anything inside that vacuum. How about 100 years? How about 1,000 years? How about 10,000 years? Nothing produces nothing. Something has always existed. This is what I try to help people understand when they're talking about the universe and creation and all the, something has always existed. If you wanna say matter and energy, you don't have any scientific evidence behind your supposition. Matter and energy has not always existed. The Big Bang is not the enemy of Christian theism. A hot Big Bang is the friend of a Christian because that proves that used to be the Big Bang theory, but now there's a lot of evidence behind it, okay? It proves that the universe had a beginning. Now, let's think about a conventional explosion. So if, you know, something blows up, do you have any sort of uh, order after the explosion? No, you have massive disorder. I mean, you know, put a bomb at the base of any building and what once was a building will be a mess, right? It's just everything is just, you know, exploding outward with no plan, no purpose, whatever. And yet the universe is not like that. So this is obviously not just any type of explosion, okay? So these are things to think about. Now, does this instantly and automatically prove the God of Christian theism? No, it doesn't. It just clears a lot of clutter out of the way, right? It moves a lot of things out of the way. All right, so the next question then, uh, is the universe necessary? Carl Sagan famously said, the universe is all there is, all there ever was, and all there ever will be. Sadly, Carl Sagan passed away, I think in the 80s. And also sadly, he never really fully understood what Einstein demonstrated, that the universe had a beginning and it has not always existed. So if Sagan was correct, then perhaps the universe just is a brute fact, but he's not correct. So let's look at this concept of contingency, something that is contingent. The universe is not necessary. God is the necessary being. But something that is contingent, right? You are contingent. The universe is contingent. Some things rely on others for their existence, and these things come into existence. These are subject to causation, and these are what Thomas of Aquinas called contingent. Contingent beings require a necessary being, all right? So the universe, is it necessary or is it contingent? Now let's take a look at this uh, main cosmological argument. The ancient Greeks believed matter to be eternal. And as you saw in the video piece that I played at the beginning, 
that understanding dominated in intellectual circles really pretty much from that point in time. They believed that this uh, matter being eternal included energy and uh, e equals mc squared means that matter and energy flow in and out of each other. So uh, the first law of thermodynamics say, is called the conservation of energy, and it would seem to support this position. That means that nothing ever goes out of existence, okay? So it might seem like it does, the aforementioned explosion. Oh, the building's not there anymore. But everything that was the building is still here. It's just kind of scattered all over the place, right? Well, what if I burn something? But in the ashes, in the smoke, you have everything that once was burned. It just doesn't look like it. So that's the cons conservation of matter. Matter doesn't ever go out of existence. Changes, matter and energy can change back and forth. Again, equals mc squared. But um, matter doesn't go out of existence, all right? Neither matter nor energy can be created nor destroyed. That's the first law of thermodynamics. So again, up until the early to mid 20th century, science was nearly united behind this idea called steady state. Now, I do have this in my notes here. So we're gonna go to this uh, notion that infinite time is impossible. Now, this is controversial. There are plenty of scientists that would say, no, this, is, this isn't true, right? Let's make, the, let's make this statement first. It is impossible that there should be an infinite regress of events in time. That means it is impossible that time would go back and back and back infinitely. The series of past events comes to an end in the present. Think about it. The series of past events comes to an end in the now, okay? But infinity cannot come to an end. If the regress of past events were infinite, then it would be impossible for the present moment to arrive. Think about it. If past time, infinite time, were re a, a reality, then the present would never arrive, all right? Because it would be impossible for us to cross the infinite to get to today, all right? Let's look at these two symbols here. Aleph is a symbol that represents an actual infinite. And the laminiscate, which is the, the, the famous eight on its side, represents a potential infinite, all right? So let's look at this idea of a potential infinite. A potential infinite is possible, but an actual infinite is impossible. What is an actual infinite? According to William Lane Craig, a collection of definite and discrete members whose number is greater than any natural number. Now, I know for some of us that are not mathematically oriented, this is like, huh? Okay. But just look at the quote up there. Okay. A collection of definite, discrete members in a, in a, uh, a set, if you will, whose number is greater than any natural number. An infinite number of objects then is impossible. Infinitely adding or dividing objects or events is impossible. Therefore, although the universe is vast, it cannot be infinite. Now we get to the mathematician. All right, this is cool. This guy is, this is why I wanted your Nana to be here. She would love this, all right? Um, this is uh, an illustration, uh, a thought experiment given by David Hilbert, uh, a famous mathematician. It's called Hilbert's Hotel. He said, the infinite is nowhere to be found in reality. It neither exists in nature nor provides a legitimate basis for rational thought. The role that remains for the infinite to play is solely that of an idea. This is the conclusion to the Hilbert's Hotel illustration. I would really need to get to the rest of my notes to go into uh, his uh, his thought experiment, right? Suffice it to say, the universe is contingent, okay? So how did it come to be? The explanation and the cause of the universe. Where did the universe come from, right? Let's look at the Big Bang Theory. The most widely accepted cosmological model was first theorized, theorized 
by Alexander Friedman and Georges Lemaitre in the 1920s. The Friedman-Lemaitre theory states that the universe, including time itself, began as a singularity, now calculated to be 13.73 billion years ago. The universe, as we know it, developed as matter and energy expanded from the this immeasurably massive singularity no larger than the head of a pin. Later, Sir Fred Hoyle derisively referred to this theory as the Big Bang, but the name stuck. They're like, ah, you want to call it that? That's fine. We'll buy into that. Later, Sir Fred Hoyle, uh, no, I already said that. <laughs> this Big Bang can still be measured as a universal, as universal cosmic background radiation. Um, listen to this quote by George Smoot of University of California, Berkeley. He said, what we have found is evidence for the birth of the universe. It is, it's like looking at God. And he was the head of the Kobe Space Satellite um, Project. It's a good Big Bang versus the Bible. When I, was, when I first became a Christian and started going to church, um, the Big Bang was viewed as the enemy. It was like, oh man, that's just, it's stupid. It's just a theory, right? And then I read this book, called Creator and Cosmos um, by Hugh Ross. And this was back um, before you were around, Jacob, uh, when your Nana was married to Bill Cotrere, and he passed away in 2000. Uh, Bill and I used to get in these arguments all the time about creation and evolution and the universe and so forth. And this drove me to start studying something outside the Bible so that I could have a discussion with him. And I bought this book called Creator in the Cosmos. Uh, Hugh Ross's first book that exploded on the scene in 99 was called The Fingerprint of God. But as I uh, demonstrated to you guys last week, um, the current book that I've relied on most heavily that has a lot of information in it is called Why the Universe Is the Way It Is by Dr. Hugh Ross, okay? And I recommend all these books of his. Um, I would recommend the later one because it has more current information in it. But nonetheless, as the result of looking at what Hugh Ross had to say, I thought, you know, I, I agreed with him. The Big Bang is not our enemy. Now, just stating that an explosion is the creative event, I think, falls far short. But demonstrating that the universe had a beginning, I think, is a very, very big deal. So Genesis 1, uh, as we saw last week, is not a scientific explanation of how the universe was formed. It's a revelation to teach people of every age and from every era that God created the universe by his word. I believe in the Big Bang. God spoke and bang, it was, right? The Big Bang is our friend. That's what I always say. Um, what, we is what we have found is evidence for the birth of the universe. It's like looking at God. That was the quote we saw earlier. Um, the Kalam cosmological argument, I would... I've, I've given it to you several times here, but I would advise you to memorize this. It's very, very simple. Whatever begins to exist has a cause for its existence. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause for its existence. Right? That's the simplicity of that argument. It's, uh, it's laid out as uh, uh, in an... Aristotelian syllogism, that's what that's called, a logical syllogism, okay? All right, let's look at impossible causes because all we've shown here is that the universe was caused. Nothing cannot produce something. So what caused the universe? What preceded the Big Bang? Scientists can't tell you that. The hypothesis, of course, the latest theory is, well, it's just a, it's a multiverse and these universes just come in and go out of existence and we don't know why and so forth. Is that more plausible or the ancient idea that there is an all-powerful intelligence above and beyond the universe that brought it into existence, right? Let's look at impossible causes. As we've said so far, nothing cannot cause something. The universe cannot cause itself. Now, you have purportedly brilliant uh, cosmologists, excuse me, astronomers, physicists, that have said, well, the universe just bootstrapped itself into existence. What, is, what does that mean? What, that's not even something we understand, bootstrapping. So 
You're you're wearing a pair of boots there, Charlotte. All right. Do those have straps on the side of them? They don't have those straps on the side of them. Yes, they do. Yeah. Okay. That's a boot strap. And so what would happen is to get your foot in one of those boots, you'd have these, you know, they have handles on them, and they have a, a two pieces of metal that go down, and they have a hook on the bottom, and you hook them inside those straps on the sides of the boot, and you pull your foot into them. That's bootstrapping. The universe just bootstrapped itself into existence, buddy. It just went boom, and I exist. But that means there has to be something. And you're saying nothing produced something, and that's the most ridiculous statement I've ever encountered. And these are supposed to be brilliant people. But you can't come up with something better than the universe just bootstrapped itself into existence? Something uncaused must cause the universe. Think about that. There must be an uncaused cause, or you have an infinite regress of causes. Right? What does that mean? That means something caused was caused by something, which was caused by something, which was caused by something, which was caused by something. But again, we've already looked at the fact that you can't have a discrete set of objects, causes, matter, energy, time, that are infinite. An infinite regress is what we want to avoid. So this is what Aristotle said. Now, Aristotle wouldn't have agreed in uh, certainly all aspects of uh, the current idea of, of theism, a theistic God, but he believed that there was an uncaused cause, right? A prime mover, an unmoved mover that began everything, okay? So we run into the same problem with uncaused causes or infinite causes that we saw concerning infinite objects or infinite time. We never arrive at the present state of affairs from the infinite series of preceding causes. Listen to this quote by uh, Quentin Smith. The universe came from nothing, by nothing, and for nothing. Well, that just sounds brilliant. Yeah, well, if you're an atheist, you, you can't believe in the existence of God, so you make these ridiculous statements. William Lane Craig said, this is simply the faith of an atheist. It is literally worse than magic. <laughs> if this is the alternative to belief in God, then unbelievers can never accuse believers of irrationality for what could be more evidently irrational than this. Would you agree? Yeah, I would agree. All right, go to this next quote by William Lane Craig. If something can come into being from nothing, then it becomes inexplicable why just anything or everything doesn't come into being from nothing. Why doesn't a pink elephant just suddenly appear in the room? Why don't things just suddenly pop in and out of existence? It's kind of like a Harry Potter movie or something, right? He says, if the price of denying the argument, that is the Kalam cosmological argument's conclusion, is denying premise one, that is that the universe came into existence, whatever begins to exist has a cause, then atheism is philosophically bankrupt, all right? So let's go to the next slide. Um, this is a thought experiment that I have done periodically, right? Just try to think of nothing. Now you can blank your mind, you can be quiet, but see what you don't understand is even nothing is something. So while you were thinking of nothing, what was going on? Oh, it was just a blank slide. Uh, it was just like white noise. It was, but all of that is something. You can't think of nothing. Although Felix is looking a little bit like it, all right? Uh, trying to blank your mind results in something, an image, feeling, psychological state, even the concept of nothing. It just, I want you to think about this. Even the concept of nothing is something. But when we're talking about nothing, we're talking about absolutely nothing, not even a concept. Now, you're going to say that that brought the universe into existence, right? So from nothing, nothing comes. Being cannot come from non-being. Nothing cannot produce or cause anything. When scientists say that the universe came from nothing, they really don't mean philosophical nothing. They call it a false vacuum or some sort of fluctuating energy field. Well, that's not nothing. Properly understood, William Lane Craig says, nothing does not mean just empty space. Nothing is the absence of anything whatsoever, even space itself. So, 
Some immaterial, uncaused cause must be the cause. Listen, it has to be immaterial. It can't be matter or energy because matter and energy is subject to causation. And it has to be uncaused. So what is the best proposition? What best fits something capable, and even saying something sounds like, you know, well, is that a, a material thing? It could, something goes beyond that, right? Something that is capable, powerful, intelligent enough to bring our universe into existence, right? It follows that if the universe is a cause of its existence, that cause must be a non-physical, immaterial being, because this has to be a being, that is something or someone that exists beyond space and time. Now, there are only two sorts of things that could fit that description that we have any experience with. Either an abstract object like a number, or else an unembodied mind. Can a number create anything? A number is just an abstract, right? It's beyond space and time, but it can't create, can't cause anything, can't bring anything into being. So the other possibility, plausible solution, is an unembodied mind. That is a mind, not a brain. A mind beyond matter. We have to have an immaterial, uncaused cause beyond space and time. We must have a mind that is also a personal being. Why would that be? Free will is the only thing that is capable of operating without prior causation. Do you believe that you're free? Were you free to come here tonight, Leo? Were you free to stay home? Jacob, were you free to come here tonight? Yeah. Could you have stayed home? Yeah. Could you walk out the back door right now? Yeah. Could you get a glass of water and throw it in my face? I've done it to you. That's the only way I could wake you up. I could jump off this stage. I can strut around like a chicken. Well, why am I doing these things? I just, I, I can do what I want to do. I can gesture like this. I can stand like this. I have a will. I'm a person. Now, that's not to say I don't have motives. But you're not a puppet. You're a person. And a person is capable of doing something without a prior cause. By the way, that's why you can be held culpable for your actions. That's why you can be called guilty of doing wrong. That's why you can be rewarded for doing right, because you choose to do it. You're not like a rock that gets thrown into the air and you don't have any choice but to go up until you reach the edge of gravity and then you start coming down. It was a philosopher named Benedict Spinoza that said, well, that's what we are. We're like those rocks. We're thrown into the air. He said it would be as though a rock that was thrown into the air suddenly became conscious. And it believed that it had chosen to go flying up in the air. And then when it reached the apex and gravity started to pull it back down, it just believed that it had made that decision. But we have the overwhelming sense that we... Although there are many things that we have to do that we feel like are forced on us, that we are free agents, okay? So the most plausible cause for the universe is an unembodied personal mind. What is this sounding like to you? Okay, here's the most likely candidate. God, by definition, is necessary or uncaused. God, by definition, is uncreated. God exists beyond time and space. God is all-powerful. God possesses limitless intelligence. God is a person with free will. The God spoken of in the Bible as creator possesses all of the necessary qualities listed. It's not stupid to believe in the existence of God. It's the most reasonable argument. So, the Bible's God is the most likely candidate to cause the existence of the universe. Do you know what God's name is? Yahweh? Do you know what it means? I am. 
When God introduces his name to humanity, he does it to Moses from a burning bush. By the way, we've heard that story, but consider that God revealed himself in a burning bush. Is that not strange? God's like, you can't liken me to anything or anyone. I can reveal myself in any way. Oh, look, there's a bush on fire. Wait a minute. And it's talking to me. I need to go and look at this. What is going on? And this voice comes out of the bush on fire that doesn't burn up and says, take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. I would say, holy cow, and probably start running the other way. But Moses stuck around. In the conversation that God has with Moses, where he's seeking to get Moses to go and be used as his agent to deliver the people of Israel from Egyptian slavery, he reveals his name. Exodus 3, 14 and 15. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Can you believe this? Until this point, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 400 years of Israelites growing from a family, an extended family, into a nation with over a million people, they didn't know God's name. He was just God. They called him Lord, Adonai. They didn't know his name. Interestingly, the Jews won't use his name to this day because they are, uh, they are reverent and don't want to violate the third commandment. What's the third commandment? Say it again. That's right. If you memorize all 10 and the first two scriptures, I'll give you a gi. All right, dude. All you got to do is say them to me and I'll buy you a gi. Be about a size five. Well, I don't know. How tall are you? Okay, four. All right. Um, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. That's what Yahweh means. That's wh what it uh, comes from. It's the proper name of the God of Israel. The pronunciation uh, that uh, you hear older folks and you will see in the King James sometimes is Jehovah. How many of you have heard that name? Jehovah. Don't ever use that name. That is not God's name. Don't ever use that name. I once you understand it, it becomes it becomes offensive, right? Now, don't be mad at older people who use that. That's the way they were raised, right? Now, I'm going to tell you how this works. The Masoretes. These are the people that preserved the Hebrew scriptures. Nobody spoke Hebrew in the Middle Ages but they were copying and recopying and copying and recopying the Old Testament. Nobody spoke Hebrew. So what they started doing, Hebrew doesn't have any vowels, right? It's all consonants. Now you can call certain of the, the Hebrew letters are, are vowel-like, like Aleph, but it doesn't really have any proper vowels, right? A-E-I-O-U. So what the Masoretes did, this group of people that were preserving the scripture, is they started using points. They call them vowel points. And they put these dots above and below the Hebrew letters in the text. Now, they weren't trying to change it. They were trying to help anyone who would seek to read the original scripture in Hebrew or cant it or chant it, as they often did, for instance, with the Psalms. They were trying to help them to pronounce it. They were saying, it's like if you go into a dictionary and you look up a word, it has a little pronunciation, right? It's got the little, you know, slight U that means that the vowel is, is short, you know, the long, the line that means the vowel is long. It's the same idea. But they stuck these dots that they call vowel points, that we call vowel points, above and below the letters. So in the Hebrew Bible, in the Masoretic text, every time you encounter the tetragrammaton, say tetragrammaton, say tetragrammaton, that is the theological way to refer to the name. Tetragrammaton is the name. Okay, the name, yod He vav He. Look up there, top corner of that square. Do you see that? It's read from right to left. Yod, that little hook right there. He, vav, looks like a longer version of the yod, and another He. That's God's name, yod He vav He. Most scholars today believe that that should be pronounced Yahweh, right? 
And we have these, you know, contemporary songs. Yahweh love, Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. I think that that trivializes God's name, and that's going the opposite direction from what the Masoretes did, which was to prevent people from pronouncing the name at all. Okay? So what they did, every time you encounter yod Hey vav Hey in the text, and it's God's name is used over and over and over and over and over hundreds of times in the Old Testament. Every time you encountered that, the Masoretes would put the vowel points for another word over it. They would put the vowel points for the word Adonai. Adonai is the, Greek, uh, the Hebrew word for, for Lord. Lord. So, a O I. Adonai. Okay? A O I. Those vowel sounds. When they put those vowel sounds over Yahweh, Yahowah. When it comes over into English, English is a Germanic language. Don't pronounce the Y's, though all the Y's get turned into J's. Okay? Joshua, as an example. Do you know what it is in Hebrew? Yehoshua. Okay. Jacob. Know what it is in Hebrew? Yahakov. There's no J. That's German. And becomes English. So Yahowah becomes Jehovah. What is it? What is W? W. Two V's. Jehovah. That's not God's name. This is God's name. It's the proper name of the God of Israel. All right. Um, here is the. It comes from the, uh, or it is related to the Hebrew word for life. Hi. Right. And uh, back up a square for me. Uh, I don't know where this is at. This should be, yeah, there it is. Uh, the one bringing into being, the life giver, the giver of existence, the creator, he who brings things to pass, the performer of his promises. All of those are what that name is about. Listen to these scriptures. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Isaiah 43.10, Isaiah 44.6, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And then, of course, the first verse in the Bible, in the beginning, God. The first verse in John, the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? So let's get it down to you. Why are you here? Why am I here? I don't mean why are you here sitting here this evening. I mean, why are you here on earth? Well, you're contingent. You don't have to exist. You're absolutely dependent upon the necessary being, that is God, for life and existence. So why are we here? There is a reason, right? And we talked about this. The reason is for you to glorify God. You were put on earth at this time and in this place so that you will, first of all, seek and find God. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said to the Greek philosophers of his day um, when he was called before them on Mars Hill in Athens, by the way, same place where Plato wrote about Socrates uh, being commissioned by his citizens to commit suicide in Athens on Mars Hill. Paul says to the philosophers of his day, to the, uh, the philosophers that wanted to hear from him, that is, um, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this. Here's your reason. Why are you here? God did this so that. That's an answer to your reason. What does it say? So they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. God wants you to find him. He puts you here to give you the opportunity to seek and find God. Listen to Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, and he's talking to the Jewish people, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. 
You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Now, that's real basic, right? We're already in church. We're already Christians. We already believe all this. But I don't think that we often or often enough go back to these original questions, right? In John 1.18, same uh, passage that begins in, uh, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, all things were made by Him. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made in Him was life, that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, the darkness can, has not overcome it. When you go all the way down to verse 18, it says, no one has ever seen God. Has anybody ever seen God? No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son, the one who is at the Father's side, He has revealed Him. So, bring it all the way down. If you seek God and you seek him genuinely, you're going to find Jesus. Those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Scripture says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So this brings you to the cross. Jesus reveals God. You're here to find God and then you're here to glorify God with your life. You're here to decide whether you want to spend eternity in heaven with God or whether this is it. And I'm a conditionalist. I, I really, really hope that hell is not eternal. Um, hell is eternal, but I hope it's not an eternal experience of torment. One way or the other, I wouldn't want to spend 10 minutes in hell or 10 years or 10,000 years or do you want to spend eternity with God, this being that called, that created you and is calling you to him, right? So all of this might sound like I'm, I'm being evangelistic to a group of people who come to church all the time. But again, what I'm truly hoping to do is to speak through you. You have friends. You're going to, Jacob, the people you're going to encounter especially in the branch of the Navy where you're going, you're going to find a lot of atheists, right? And they're not going to be all of these anti-theist haters that you encounter in, you know, writing like Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins. Some of them just haven't found a compelling reason to believe that God exists. You know what? I have a heart for people like that. If you're sincere and your questions are sincere, then we can have a conversation. If your questions are just designed to build a barrier between you and this God that you don't want to believe in, that's a different story, right? We just are not going to have really any sort of relationship. But what I hope is that I presented some facts here for you tonight that you can share that you can use to clear out the mental clutter, right? And, you know, you've got a book that I gave you that I think comes from another angle. It's largely going to be the teleological argument, which is what I'm going to present next week. But um, the, uh, the fellow that wrote that book is a cold case detective, I think, from L.A. Uh, in fact, he's been called on all of these TV shows to, uh, you know, talk about cases that have been closed, murder cases and so forth that have been closed. But he looked at the universe and he used the same types of uh, um, tools, intellectual tools, that he used to solve crimes to demonstrate that the universe proves the existence of God. He looked at Jesus and the Gospels and did 